Tonight on Farage, it's Cummings v Boris. It's a fight for the Prime Minister's very survival. The question is, with their contradictory stories, who do you believe? I'll be joined here in the studio by the Ukrainian ambassador to London to discuss, is Putin about to invade the Ukraine? And joining me on Talking Pines, a winner of the Eurovision Song Contest. Seems almost inconceivable now, doesn't it? Yep, Jay Aston will be here. Good evening. Last night, just before we came on air, Dominic Cummings launched his most vicious attack on the Prime Minister to date. He made it perfectly clear that he and others had told the Prime Minister that the party, the bring-your-own-bottle-booze-up party, should not go ahead, and that the Prime Minister had simply brushed it away. But he then made the most serious accusation you could possibly make against the Prime Minister, namely that he lied to Parliament. Now, Boris Johnson has responded to this today. He did an interview with Sky News. Let's have a look at a small section of it. I, I do humbly apologise to people for uh, misjudgments that were made, but that is the, the very, very best of my recollection about this event. That's what I've, uh, I've said to, to the inquiry. We'll have to see what they, what they say. Dominic Lawson wrote in the Sunday Times that, that, as well, you had been told by two officials it was a party and should be cancelled. You were dismissive. He writes, you said they were overreacting, said Martin Reynolds was your loyal Labrador. Is that also untrue? Look, I've told you, uh, and I, I repeat, I'm deeply sorry for misjudgments that were, that were, that were made. You and, misjudgments? And yes, if, uh, because ultimately... Because it seems like you're trying Beth, to pass the I, blame No, I carry, I carry full responsibility for, for what took place. But nobody told me, I can absolutely, I'm absolutely categorical about this, nobody said to me, this is an event that is against the rules, uh, that is in breach of... Uh, what we're asking everybody else to do uh, should not go ahead. Well, I have to say, there's the Prime Minister saying he didn't know it was against the rules. But hang on, am I missing something? Wasn't it this Prime Minister who actually set those rules? And I think you could hear and see in that interview he was in considerable trouble. Now, the other question, I guess, to ask is, do we believe Dominic Cummings? Do we believe the man whose excuse for driving to Barnard Castle, a full 25 miles away, over that Easter weekend, that he was testing his eyesight. I mean, I don't think I've ever heard a more ludicrous excuse in the whole of my life. So do we believe Cummings, who clearly is motivated by negativity, motivated by bringing down the Prime Minister? It's not nice, it's not pretty, it's ugly. I have to say, on a personal level, I can't stand Dominic Cummings. And I've always found Boris, not always on politics, but in personal terms, one-to-one, -one, a very pleasant chap to meet. But the stakes could not be higher. And it isn't just Dominic Cummings saying this. Indeed, there are senior journalists who spoke to others that were in Number 10 at the time who say Johnson was categorically told this party was a bad idea and that it was against the rules, and yet he didn't say that to Parliament. He gave completely the opposite impression. This is now gunfight at the OK Corral. This is now the issue that will decide whether Boris Johnson can stay as Prime Minister or not. I'm asking you, who do you believe? Do you believe the Prime Minister or do you believe Dominic Cummings? 
please let me know what you think. Farage at gbnews.uk. Now, can he survive? Um, I'm joined by Darren McCaffrey, GB News' political editor. Let's just talk for a moment about the sort of machinations that have been going on in Westminster. Um, let's begin, Darren, with what's been dubbed the pork pie plot. Explain. Indeed. And this is 2019, or MPs that were elected in 2019, who've been meeting, it seems, in various different parts of Parliament yesterday and today, in various different groups. They insist, or some of the people who attended these meetings, not in a concerted attempt to try and remove the Prime Minister, but to essentially express their frustration. And it seems that a lot of them are frustrated and that they are uh, thinking, if some of them have not already done so, sent in letters to the 1922 committee and to Graham Brady uh, to remove... And that needs 54 letters to trigger... It needs 54. I think we're up to seven now publicly to to trigger our leadership election. So we're nowhere near in terms of the public figures. However, as we've seen in the past with Conservative leadership races, privately those numbers tend to be a lot higher. The best guesstimation at the moment is between 20 and 30. But in reality, no one really uh, knows. And that's why things can change very quick. And things are pretty freeball at Westminster this afternoon. There is an awful lot of talk, as I say, about these meetings, about MPs who, far from being won over by the Prime Minister today, think that that interview again... Well. And, and the explanation was a mistake. Not least of all, I think two things. Uh, first of all, it's the uncertainty about whether the Prime Minister essentially is telling the truth when it comes to uh, whether he was told about the party or not. Mm. But second of all, and this gets rooted down to the root of, again, the anger after Prime Minister's question time last week. And to be fair, Beth Rigby put this to the Prime Minister, this almost ludicrous suggestion that the man who's drawn up the rules by lockdown yeah, yeah, yeah. Is, is kind of taking us all for fools in the suggestion that he went to his own garden, so lots of people gathered around eating and drinking, and did not conclude instantly, or at least within the 25 minutes he was there, that this was a party and was wrong and potentially illegal. I mean, that's the kind of, that's the frustration amongst MPs, that they just do not believe that that is at all plausible. And to add to all of this tonight, we're starting to see a bit of a civil war open up within the Conservative Party, potentially. And this hops back to the Owen Paterson affair, when there was that disagreement between the all guard Conservative MPs and the newly elected ones back in 2019. Uh, the Times reporting tonight that essentially uh, some cabinet ministers are having a go with these newly elected Tory MPs, saying it's pretty sickening, this attempt, yeah. they say, to remove the Prime Minister. They're only there because <clears throat> of Boris Johnson. They only got elected because of him. And most of them are a load of nobodies. It's nuts. Now, is that really going to help? Is that really going to convince some of these MPs? Well, no more than Jacob Rees-Mogg's comments about Douglas Ross, the leader of the Scottish Conservative Party, did. No, it doesn't. But let me ask you this. On his own, is Dominic Cummings a credible witness? On his own, probably not. In, certainly in the sense of public opinion. He is not very popular and understandably no, Deservedly so. Yeah, and, and there are lots of people, I'm sure, watching this programme who will say, why are we believing a man yeah. who also came up with an equally ridiculous claim <laughs> about uh, why he broke lockdown rules in 2020, yeah. i.e. that visit to Barnard Castle and testing his eyesight? It seems as ludicrous yeah. now as it was at the time. The, the problem, I think, for the Prime Minister are two things. Dominic Cummings seems to still be suggesting he's got evidence. Also, I'm not entirely sure why he would go into this fight, particularly on a very public issue of record, which is very easily solvable or very easy to focus on, this idea that the Prime Minister's lying, if he didn't have that evidence. And I think, second of all, and you touched upon this, it's not just Dominic Cummings saying this too. There are other journalists, most notably Dominic Lawson, 
an eminent conservative journalist, former editor of The Spectator, yeah. who wrote in The Sunday Times on Sunday, saying that he had heard that people had warned Boris Johnson about this party. And again, that is playing on MPs' minds. It's why they're concerned. How does this play out? Well, it is still entirely possible, of course, that the Prime Minister will find a pathway through this, uh, that MPs will not move, that Sue Gray's report, and this could be crucial... Which, by the way, Dominic Cummings has announced in the last hour that he is going to give testimony to. Yeah, fascinating. And I, and I think, even though, as I say, the atmosphere at Westminster is very excitable at the moment, slightly panicked as well, mm. the, the view that I get from MPs is that there is unlikely to be that move in terms of the letters until we see the Sue Gray report. Most of them are prepared to stand back and wait for that. But, you know, flip me, considering Dominic Cummings is talking to... Uh, her, yeah. She sounds pretty rigorous. We don't know what that report's going to hold. Another crucial moment, of course, will be PMQs yesterday. And it is notable, and I say this because the reaction afterwards has been notable. The Prime Minister went to PMQs last week and apologised. It didn't go down well. He then went into hiding, effectively, for six days. Then he comes out with an and, interview. And it seems, to, it seems to have baited somewhat. And then he comes out today... And it's bombed. And almost seems to make things yeah. worse. And I think the concern, again, for MPs tomorrow will... What will happen to PMQs? And also, fundamentally, when and where does this, does this end? And just very finally, even if, and it is entirely possible, let's not get carried away, it's entirely possible he may well hold on, but the big question is, he can he recover? Can he Can, can he yeah, come back well, from all of this in six months' time, a year's time, or ahead of the general election? Well, Darren, fascinating. And we're talking, of course, here about Conservative MPs. But what's going on with Conservative voters out there in the country? Well, joining me to perhaps help to answer that question is Professor Sir John Curtis, political scientist and Professor of Politics at the University of Strathclyde. John, good evening. Good evening to you, Nigel. As I say, I think so much of the media, so much of the debate is around what the 2019 intake think or what the old guards think. What's happening out there in the real world? Well, the difficulty that faces the Prime Minister, I think, is that many voters made up their minds about this issue last month in the wake of the original Partygate row about that now infamous video featuring his former press secretary, Allegra Stratton. Um, at that point, around two-thirds of people said, frankly, we're doubtful that the Prime Minister is telling us the truth. That proportion hasn't declined, and it included about a half of those people who voted Conservative in 2019. And you've referred quite a lot to Dominic Cummings and Barnard Castle. Well, there's an important lesson here uh, for ministers. In the uh, midst of the Barnard Castle row, the Conservative ministers expended a lot of effort on trying to persuade people that what he had done was within the rules. Frankly, they failed, and indeed public opinion shifted further in the direction of saying that he'd broken the rules. And so far, at least, exactly the same thing is playing out over this Partygate row. The public started off being extremely doubtful, including a significant proportion of Conservative voters. And the truth is, the situation has just got worse. So whereas... At the um, last year, uh, towards the end of last year, we were talking um, about 50% or so of voters saying he should resign, and only a minority, albeit about a third, of Conservative voters saying that Mr Johnson should resign. We're now talking about two-thirds of voters saying he should resign. 
and now actually on average across the polls, slightly more conservative 2019 voters saying he should go than saying he should stay. Now, it has to be said, another poll, conservative activists, only about a quarter think he should go. But of course, yes. that's but, bound to be the last we doubt to support but they're different, the Prime yeah. Minister. Yeah, I mean, how, how activists in parties think and how voters think can be, as you say, very, very different things. I mean, prime ministers all through history have good times and bad times. Um, you know, I can think of perhaps Mrs. Thatcher's premiership, you know, 1981, um, in very, very deep trouble with her own party, with conservative commentators. But by 1983, it had turned around to a really quite dramatic election Victory, And some would argue, John Curtis, that Boris Johnson himself, throughout his political career, has had all sorts of disasters, sackings, scandals, goodness knows what else. And every time, after a short period out, he's bounced back to even higher levels. What are the prospects of Boris Johnson being able to turn this opinion around? Well, you're quite right. Prime Ministers have often been in trouble. His predecessor, Theresa May, was in very considerable trouble and became deeply unpopular. But what was the reason? The reason was essentially she could not unite her party behind the policy of Brexit she was trying to pursue. John Major was deeply unpopular. But why? Well, first of all, because of Black Wednesday, and then the fact that in the wake of that, his party was riven um, over Brexit. Um, Gordon Brown was deeply unpopular. But why? Well, initially because he uh, gave the suggestion he was going to hold a general election and then flunted and then, of course, hit the uh, stormy waters of the financial crash. Now, the point about all those three, and I could think of others, you already cited uh, 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 Margaret Thatcher, yeah. is that these were all arguments and debates about policy, whether they were pursuing the right policies or perhaps a little bit about their political judgment. This, however, is a debate about whether or not the Prime Minister's personal ethics, integrity, probity and honesty are, are to be accepted in face value or not. And in, in a sense, this is perhaps the reverse side of what has been Boris Johnson's uh, great uh, strength. His great strength, I think, as a politician has been somebody absolutely focused on outcomes, and in doing that, has sometimes been willing to, shall we say, ride roughshod with some of the rules. Now, one obvious example, prorogation in September 2019, ruled unlawful by the UK Supreme Court. But at least half the country was behind him. Indeed, his popularity amongst new voters increased among, among, in, in the wake of that. And one can think of other examples with Boris Johnson, you know, taking a risk with public money on vaccines. Uh, equally, you know, some debatable procedures for procuring PPE. But these were all things where at least a significant section of voters would be willing to say the end justifies the means. The problem in the last uh, couple of months is that, first of all, with the Owen Patterson affair, which you recently mentioned, and now with Partygate, there isn't a constituency of people out there who thinks that the end justifies the means. With Owen Patterson, Nobody thinks that life should be made easier for second MPs yeah. on, uh, their, their second, on their second jobs and that therefore we should try to bend the rules over that. And as we learned from the Dominic Cummings affair, nobody thinks that those who are making the rules should be allowed to I, break I them. So therefore, the strength of the prime minister, which is our willingness to bend the rules in order to achieve things, has arguably now become his Achilles heel. Because now people are saying, hang on, he's breaking the rules. 
but for no good reason. And again, you know, some of the uh, fascinating uh, focus group research that James Johnson, Theresa May's uh, former pollsters come out with, the people are saying, well, yeah, we thought he was personable, thought he was a bit of a character, but they're now saying he's a buffoon and actually perhaps he's a liar. So as it were, people who viewed him through one prism now in these very different circumstances am I viewing from another? I have to say. Some of his critics have always viewed him through. They are, they are pretty damning comments that came from that survey James Johnson did. So, John Curtis, as ever, thank you for your analysis. Fascinating. It's all about trust, you see, folks. In a moment, I'll be joined by the Ukrainian ambassador to the United Kingdom. We'll talk about is Putin on the verge of an invasion. I asked the question, who do you believe, Cummings or Boris Johnson? Deborah says, not Cummings. Obviously, I regret deeply backing him over Barnard Castle, and I bet Boris does too. Michelle on Twitter says to me, I don't believe either of them. Dorothy says, if Boris cannot understand COVID rules, which he drew up, he is not fit to be Prime Minister. Dean says, neither. It's a game. Cummings, Boris and the media at our expense and our kids' future. No, I promise you... This is not a game. It really isn't. Another on Twitter says to me, neither. One is a liar, the other is a politician. Still, who cares? There's more important things we need to deal with other than who or what possibly had a drink at number 10. Well, you may well think that. Let me tell you something that is actually very, very important, and that is the situation in the Ukraine right now. We've known for some time that Vladimir Putin has had tens of thousands of troops on Ukraine's eastern border. We also know there's been kind of a war going on there for many, many years. But there are some commentators now saying they believe that Putin is on the very verge of a major, major invasion. And I need to find out, is it really going to happen? And if it does, to what extent do we, as a country, get involved? I'm delighted that Vadim Pristico... The Ukrainian ambassador to London is here with me in the studio, and thank you for coming in. Thank you. So the troops have been massed, the Putin troops have been massed on the border for a considerable period of time. And I, I know the skirmishes are ongoing continually, and you've had people killed every month for the last, what is it, five or six years now? This has been going on? Almost eight. Almost eight. Just in the last 48 hours, there seems to be a change in the way some British and American commentators are looking at this situation. Is it your belief that Putin is about to launch an incursion into your country? That's what we fear, that's for sure. And it's not just us, as you mentioned, that our partners in NATO and around the globe start to understand what we've been saying for so many years, that they are coming to something. They can't just you know, sit there, shoot over the touchline. They will have to do something. They can't keep the thousands of troops at our border. And that's what we fear that some people were missing. I hope, and I see it now, that is coming to understanding. Putin makes a point, and he's made a point repeatedly. And this is a, a difficult one for you, I think, a difficult position for you to be in. You know, historically, I think the West has tended not to understand Russia or the Russian mentality, or the degree to which Russia can be a slightly paranoid and fearful country. But the point Putin makes 
which I have some sympathy with, is he says, if you keep advancing NATO to our borders, we see that as a threat, we see it as a possible encirclement. And isn't the truth, Vadim, that over the last decade and more, there have been repeated conversations between NATO and the Ukraine as to whether you should join. The European Union have been pumping money into the Ukraine. And indeed, you know, when one of your presidents was brought down a few years ago, there were people in Kiev waving European Union flags. Do not understand that actually the Ukraine... And I can understand, if I was Ukrainian, I'd want to join NATO. <laughs> I mean, I get that. But from a strategic point of view, aren't the West making a bit of a mistake in trying to drag the Ukraine into their orbit? If you consider West the EU and NATO, but you're right, let's talk about NATO first. Yeah. Let me show our perspective. In 1994, we decided to give up the nuclear weapons physically to Russia because you requested. You, Americans and Russians, signed the agreement with us that we will be defended. There were no guarantees, but assurances. Oh, sorry, we didn't understand the difference in meaning of English words. We hoped that what we got at the, at the deal, that we give up the weapons, mm -hmm. which actually were more than you had France and China together. So your life was much more safer since then, since 1994. And we believe that you and the United States and Russia will first, will, will not threaten us with anything and will defend if anything happens to us because we can't defend ourselves with nuclear weapons anymore. And look at us now, after all these 30 plus years, we're now in a sort of waiting until one of those ones who are signing will come to us and the two of others who signed actually are not Russian to help us with this war. And you're right, we lost already 13 plus thousands yeah. of people. Yeah. So uh, that's our perspective. Yeah, no, I understand that perspective, but I also understand the Russian perspective. And historically, you know, British foreign policy in the past has used the buffer state concept. You know, Belgium was designed to be, in the end, the Germans invaded it, it caused a war. But so, so I do kind of understand what Putin... I'm not defending his actions, but I do understand that the ever-constant eastward expansion of NATO is seen by many in Russia to be a threat, whether it is or isn't, but it's seen to be a threat. Now, overnight, we learn that roughly 100 British troops have arrived in the Ukraine... We're helping provide you with more military equipment. If the situation on your eastern border does deteriorate, are you expecting us and the Americans to come and help? Uh, let's establish first that each and every nation has the right to defend itself mm -hmm. unilaterally or collectively. That's in the UN Charter. So Russia has the concerns. We also have our concerns. And you mentioned historically. Historically, we also wanted to be protected. And we, we can be protected by a piece of paper, which signed not just the one Budapest Memorandum I mentioned, but there are treaties between Ukraine and Russia, how they love us, how they recognize our sovereignty, territorial integrity, and the rest. So I, we understand that they consider NATO a threat. We consider NATO as the only option for us, uh, the only umbrella, security umbrella. There is none in our part of the globe. So that's about NATO. Or talking about your presence on our borders, this is how these hundred people came to let our people know better the equipment we just received yeah. yesterday. Yeah. So their mission is quite limited. They will go back. But frankly, as Ukrainian who is under threat and 40 plus million nation is under threat, I would ask all our partners to help with everything they can. And believe me, I, I 
should be modest, but I also expect any sort of help, boots on the ground as well. Now, your, your, your own army is quite considerable in size, isn't it? It's bigger, much bigger than it used to be. 250,000 plus 500 veterans who would easily take weapons back and defend the nations. So it's quite a sizable army. It's going to be... Well, the Dean Pristico, thank you for coming in. Uh, if there is an invasion of your country, it's going to pose some big problems here. You know, we've just left... We've just left Afghanistan after 20 years um, and not left it very well. Uh, this is going to be a major debate. Uh, and, and listen, thank you for coming in. And we're going to follow this incredibly closely because it matters hugely. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, really heavy stuff. Now, on a slightly lighter note, my What the Farage moment are England's cricketers. Yes, we had a complete and utter disaster in the ashes, losing 4-0. It wasn't very pretty. But then, our most senior players, James Anderson, our leading ever wicket-taker, Joe Root, who is going to finish up as our most prolific run-scorer of all time, they, at the end of the series, went out partying with three of the Australians, Nathan Lyon, Alex Carey and Travis Head. And they went out for a drink at the end of the Ashes series. The trouble was it wasn't really just a quick drink. In fact, they finished up at six o'clock in the morning outside their hotel um, and somebody called the police. So the Hobart police arrived and there are some out there saying that it's apps and those of you are watching it on television can see the scene and they do all look a little bit tired and there are quite a few bottles of beer on the table but they're not exactly being outrageous. They're not smashing the place up. And they're coming under condemnation. Many, many commentators are saying this is irresponsible behaviour. Senior cricketers shouldn't behave like this. Well, let me just have one word of sympathy for our cricketers and Australia's cricketers. Because of COVID rules, these people have been living in a bubble for the best part of two years. For most of the time, away from their families, away from their friends. And if they had the chance at the end of a long Ashes series to go out and enjoy themselves. And I think the fact that on the field, you know, they're deadly opponents, but they can get together and socialise, I think that's actually rather a good thing. Now, another point is, and this, I think, is very important, the Treasury. As soon as the pandemic hit, there were bounce-back loans. There were furlough schemes. There was money being doled out and literally no questions asked. Well, we heard rumours of people buying brand new sports cars. We heard rumours of all sorts of fraudulent schemes. It now turns out, and this story broke yesterday, I'm absolutely stunned that it hasn't got bigger coverage today, although I guess with the Boris v Cummings uh, battle going on, maybe it's not surprising. But the Treasury have now written off four point three billion pounds of your money that was given out to fraudsters during the pandemic. Four point three billion pounds has been written off. Just think how many hospitals we could have built with that. And I have to say, for Rishi Sunak, this actually is a little bit of a disaster. Because Conservative chancellors need a reputation of doing well their fiduciary duty in looking after our money. And I think Rishi has really got 
a few questions to answer. Now, what about some good news stories? There's too much negativity around. <coughs> we were told all the way through Brexit would be an economic disaster for the country. Nobody would invest. It would all go wrong. Well, overnight, PwC have launched their 25th annual global CEO survey. It's a survey of 4,500 global CEOs across 90 countries. And they found the United Kingdom is more important in terms of growth prospects to CEOs globally than any other country. The UK has now overtaken China, particularly as United States company leaders preferred target for investment for the next year. So we are, for the Americans, the biggest and most powerful economy in the world, we are now the number one place they want to invest and they want to do business. And this is all happening despite the government not actually taking advantage of Brexit in many of the ways they could. It just shows you what a great future we've got. And I really do mean that. Now, in a moment, the Eurovision Song Contest. I mean, I've had enough of these biased judges. I think it's time we withdrew. But there was a time when we used to do well. In fact, there was a time we used to win the Eurovision Song Contest. And one of those winners was Jay Aston, and she'll be joining me in a moment for Talking Pants. Well, the GB News pub is open, but tonight, actually, our guest is being served with a cup of tea. So, but you still, Jay Aston, can say cheers, cheers. with your cup of tea. Yeah. And welcome to the programme. Well, thank you very much. Now, I'm just trying to picture this. You're 19 years old. <laughs> yes. And you're in a band, Bucks Fizz, and you go off and win the Eurovision Song Contest. It's like, let's have a look. Let's have a look at winning the Eurovision Song Contest. Yep, I watched it live. It's, it's quite a few years ago, isn't it? It is. It's many. It's, it's 40. 40. It's 40. Yes. But I'm just thinking, you know, you're 19 and suddenly from obscurity. Yeah, overnight. I mean, it's overnight stardom. Yeah. And you're 19 years old. Yeah. Must have been an amazing feeling. Oh, it was incredible. One of the best days of my life. Very hectic uh, directly after it for a few years. But my brother did Eurovision the year before, and he was in a band called Prima Donna, and they came second. So I kind of knew what was going to happen. Yeah. And I, I was brought into a showbiz family. So when we were kids, we kind of had a bet, and we, we both wanted to win Eurovision when I was about nine. <laughs> did you really? <laughs> yeah. I don't think he's ever forgiven me, but, uh, yeah, my brother came second. So. so suddenly stardom, and you had that hit record, you had other successes. Yeah, it was, it was huge hits, yeah. And you sold how many? Millions of records. Millions of records. And you had fame. Yeah. How did you cope with that? Well, I think it, I was a bit young, I have to say. I think um, Mike and Cheryl and Bobby, being that bit older, probably coped with it differently. But I had been brought into a showbiz family. Yeah, you said. So, it's sort of... so my dad was a comic. Um, and so my whole childhood was, if I wasn't at school, I was on the side of a stage. 
or we were, you know, working on scripts or costumes or choreography or... So it was quite natural to me. And I was gigging when I was 14, going to school and then doing shows. So it was just a bit of fun. And, and you know, I never really thought we'd win. No. Three minutes to change your life. That's but, what they but, sent but, you. And we did. But that and makes it even better. Working off of it now, 40 years on. But off the back of that and selling, you know, Land of Make Believe and the things you did then, I mean, you should have made a fortune. We should have. What happened? <laughs> what went wrong? We had a terrible deal. We had a really bad deal. In fact... When we first met, we went to see um, a lawyer, and we couldn't afford a proper lawyer, so we went to Equity, our union. Yep. And uh, the guy there read the contract and went, it's not very good. It changed, like, one or two things. But then when I left the band years later, we found out that um, he wasn't a proper lawyer. <laughs> so we signed this contract, which looked like it could run for sort of two or three years, but it had the potential to run for 20 years. So your whole career yeah. on a three-minute song. And so, yeah, it was... But, I mean, it was still a wonderful experience. Yeah, no, I'm sure it was. And it was all going wonderfully well, and you yeah. were touring the country. Yeah. Um, and then the first of several things, I think, that we share in common in terms of life experience... Yeah. There's an horrendous crash, isn't there? Yes, absolutely. That was terrible. Christmas 1984, we just started a tour. It was the second night, and we were in Newcastle. And the next night, we were meant to make it to Wembley. Never made it to Wembley. So on the way back, we were, were just going back to the hotel after the gig, sold out tour, and we hit this lorry. And it, was, it had steel on it, so it was literally like hitting a wall. And, and Mike Nolan was particularly badly injured. I mean, most of the roof came off on, on, on the vehicle. Mm. And so so many of the uh, uh, musicians were hurt as well. And it changed our lives. In fact, it was that that really made me decide to leave the band. Because there was always friction, you see, but within the band... And it just felt like someone was saying, you know, that's the end, it's finished. Mike Nolan had the last rights read over him, so I couldn't see a future. And he was terribly badly injured, and it's taken him decades, really, to recover. But he has done an incredible job, you know, he's, he is quite remarkable, and we're still gigging, so... But, but it was, but, uh, uh, horrendous. It was tragic. So, literally, I mean, you know, the, the, the world's going wonderfully well, and suddenly yeah. it's a disaster. You said there were frictions within the band before... Yeah the crash, but there are frictions in every band, aren't there? Well, always, yes. I mean, you are, we were a manufactured band, one of the first, and that has its problems. And um, the thing is, Mike and Cheryl were very close, and Bobby was that bit older, and he would, they, would, they would always disagree. And I would be the floating vote, so I think with, with all bands, it's difficult. And it's also the workload you're dealing with, you know, and all the travelling and all of that, and the egos, of course. Mm. Yeah, so. which is going to happen, but, yeah. but, but, but bands can still get on. I mean, they can still go on for years and years and years, despite those difficulties and despite those tensions. But this was a very, very dramatic end for you, and you were lucky perhaps not to be more seriously hurt, frankly. Yes. I mean, I, I hit... Oh, it's a silly, silly story, but I always say tangerine saved my life. <laughs> I was sat at the front of the, of the van, of the, of the uh, coach, and I wanted to go up the back uh, to the loo, and there was this fruit rolling about. So I picked the fruit up because it was all going on the sort of over on the side. And as I picked the fruit up, I saw my manager and I went, oh, can I have a word? And I heard someone say, we're going to hit that. And so literally, if I hadn't literally <laughs> been tidy, <laughs> um, I would have been in a different position. I'd have been up the front or I'd have been in, in the uh, bathroom area where the main girder of the coach would have literally gone right straight through me. So it's all those split-second decisions that change your life. Bits of, bits of luck. Now, that amazing three minutes that you had, and, and you weren't the only British people ever to win it, 
But, I mean, Eurovision now, I was joking in the intro before the break, <laughs> I, I think we should leave. It's time to leave the Euro <laughs> Eurovision Song Contest. But, I mean, it, it, it would appear, even before Brexit, yeah. that a lot of countries out there just don't like us. It doesn't seem to matter how good or bad the British Act is. The vast TV audience, I mean, and I used to tune into it every year, and, you know, when Terry Wogan was doing it, he was absolutely brilliant. He was brilliant. brilliant. I really miss him. And a lovely he was, sense. Delightful. He was a man. Delightful man. Yeah. Delightful man. Um, but we're doing, I mean, the whole, the whole thing's rigged against us, isn't it? We've got no more chance in Eurovision than we had of the European Union. <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm not sure about that. I mean, there's always been political voting. And because there's so yeah, many different countries now, um, you know, there's so many different tastes and flavours. So I think it's very, very hard to win that competition. And I think what we're but, doing but is we're wrong if we don't make enough effort. We're coming last. Oh, it was horrendous. We're I was so getting... embarrassed. But I was not, so, like... How can we come last? I mean, but we obviously aren't putting in the right thing. We're not putting in the right song and the right artist. And I do think we could do better. I don't think we could win, but I do think we could end up on the right side of the leaderboard. Well, it seems to me for the last few years, the political voting has been extraordinary, um, loaded against us in the most ridiculous way. I mean, I just think we're <laughs> whistling in the wind with it. But you still think that, that, that we should pursue it? And, I, I think I, I really think anything that brings that amount of people together to listen to music and have a bit of fun and enjoy themselves, I think it's a good thing. I think it's a positive but thing. But it's making the country angry. Mm, I think loads of people still love it. I don't <laughs> think we should pull out, really. I just think we need, need to put in a good song. And I've actually got a confession to make. I've, I've put a song in this year. Right. Uh, I don't know what's going to happen. OK. So I just thought, why, you know, because I often go on and say, look, we're not doing well enough. So I tried to write a song and tried to come up with a concept. And I've entered it, but I, I, I have no idea what will happen with it. Okay. It might not see the light of day. <laughs> well, when it comes to uh, when it comes to the Eurovision, you're clearly a Remainer. Um, <laughs> yes, totally. But, but wasn't it, on Brexit. But when it came to the European <laughs> Union, you were very much a lever, weren't you? Yes, indeed, I was. I, you... I, I wasn't happy being told that we made a mistake when there. So was is that what is that what politicised you? Well, no. I mean, I just thought I wasn't happy with the way things have been going for quite a few years. But ultimately, it was about democracy, wasn't it? You know, you can't really lose that. And that's why you got involved be... with the Brexit Party, because of that, to sort of yeah, get it back I on Yeah, I mean, I, you know, a lot of people don't like me for doing that. And it wasn't, you know, it's a very divisive whole situation. But what I thought ultimately, or, you know, I, I haven't been happy with things that have been going on for years. But ultimately, if you have a clear winning side mm. and then you tell them you got it wrong, vote again, try and overturn that. It was disgusting, it was, wasn't it? I thought it was just wrong. Yeah, yeah. Like, no, oh, no, I think, I mean, Jay, I th you know, I, th I think we'll look back in 100 years' time over that period between 2016 for the next sort of three and a half years as being one of the most shameful periods of our democratic history. I mean, I really, really do. And how do you see it now with Boris? Ooh. <laughs> I really don't know how he's going to get out of this one. Um, people are really upset. They're really... Uh, I, I think they're a bit dumbfounded that, that there was obviously a rule for them and a rule for us. And there's a lot of... Um, anger on the streets. I mean, people have been through an absolute nightmare. They've, been, you know, they've lost their businesses. I've personally lost two cousins and a good friend, and, and I couldn't go to the funeral. And then you sort of think, they're having a party at that time. And that's where the anger is. And, and it? it's uh, yeah, understandable, yeah. Yeah, I think it's that, and I think it's also a feeling we're not being told the truth. You know, rather than when they're caught putting their hands up, they're just not doing it. So there is a lot of anger out there in the country, a, a, lot, a lot of frustration. 
And you've had, you said you lost family members, but you've had your own health issues, haven't you, over the yeah. last couple of years? Yes. Which, again, rather like me, another thing we have in common, you've had a, <laughs> a battle with cancer. Yeah. It was um, three years ago now. I uh, was just having a routine dental check. And a few years before I got ill, I had this sort of white little patch come up on my tongue. And it was literally a regular check. And they were kind of keeping an eye on it, but suddenly it changed. So it went from pre-cancer from one biopsy to cancer in just three weeks. Mm. So that's why they've had to do a much bigger operation. So they've removed the uh, bottom of my tongue. They sort of went in here and they took a piece of my leg off. Gosh. So that's... But it did run a marathon, so I'm hoping it'll be pretty good in the future. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I've had to learn to sing and talk, obviously. Um, and it's been a bit of a long recovery, longer than I a anticipated. But I'm, I'm here and I... And yeah, you're I'm, looking well. I'm, I'm enjoying life. And it does change you, uh, having cancer. I'm sure you, you had the same... Yeah, I was very young. I was 21 when it happened to me. But I, yeah, yeah. you know, I mean, it, 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 it does make you a lot more thoughtful. Yeah, um, it gives you a different perspective. As a person. So you've got through that. And then you had a bad attack of COVID, I understand, as well. Yes, I did. Um, well, my daughter got it, but she didn't really have symptoms. And then my husband got it terribly. I was very worried about him. And then I caught it. And, of course, I was only just, you know, fairly soon after recovery. You were obviously weakened, in a sense, weren't you, I yeah. guess, by what you'd been through before? Yes. I think it's the... I think if anyone's had cancer, they do struggle with energy. So yeah. my, it's always been that my energy, I have to be really careful about what I do. Horrific. And, and from the sounds of it, the operation you went through was a really, really major operation. Yeah, it was seven hours. Yeah. Gosh. And oh. my surgeons, though, I mean, they're amazing what they can do today. So I thank the good old NHS. <laughs> yeah, but they, they're so... I mean, we've got six million people now waiting for operations. Yeah. Um, People who've got money going effect. privately. Yeah. I mean, it is very, very difficult indeed, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they're overrun. They need... I mean, it's, it's always... There's always been a problem with the NHS, one thing after another. And then, obviously, mm. this has just been horrendous. So you've got a song in for this year's Eurovision. <laughs> You're back to health. So what yes. next? Oh, well, The Fizz recorded a new album, which are, is our fourth with Mike Stock, producer yep. from Stock Aitken and yeah, Waterman. Yeah. And we're just awaiting the final mixes. So it's quite an eclectic mix, so it should be quite <laughs> an interesting album, so we'll be promoting that. And we're going back to, to gigs, they're coming back. And that tour that we had to cancel, which was ironically called Up Close and Personal, right. <laughs> went, of course. But now we're just trying to... The ones that survived, anyway, the, the gigs that weren't cancelled, so we're just finishing that tour. Right, well, as I say, you know, major road traffic accident, cancer... Brexit party. Our daughters were at school together. <laughs> Jay Astor, we've got quite a lot in common. Big thank you to you for coming in and joining me. Oh, on my Talking pleasure. Thank, thank you, you very much. Thank you. We are coming towards the end of the show, but, of course, as ever, you fire in your questions to me under the Barrage, the Farage section. One viewer asks me, why do you think someone has waited nearly two years to release the information about the Downing Street party. Well, <clears throat> that's a question very much about Dominic Cummings, about his personality. You know what they say? Revenge is a dish best served cold. And that's exactly what Cummings is doing. He is a, a scheming, calculating individual. I don't for one moment doubt his intelligence. And yes... He's been saving this up 
for the right moment. He did not feel, and it wasn't just Barnard Castle. The one thing about Cummings I liked is he thought the civil service had too much power in this country and they were stopping government for making the kind of reforms and changes that are needed. But he feels that Boris Johnson did not back him up in that very, very important battle. And frankly, he's been out to bring the Prime Minister down ever since that moment in time. It is ugly, it is unpleasant, there's nothing nice about this at all. And yet, at this gunfight at the OK Corral, as I see, between Cummings, uh, who's the Wyatt Earp, uh, and Boris, who's the sheriff, uh, I have to say, however much I may dislike Cummings, I suspect his account of what took place over that party is the right one. And I think because of that, he'll probably, he's probably going to win this, and the Prime Minister's in real trouble. Robert asks, with the Russian army massing on the Ukrainian border, Chinese spies infiltrating Parliament through the Labour Party and Covid, do you think too much time is being spent on Boris Johnson's petty transgressions? If he's found to have lied to the House of Commons, that is not a petty transgression. And as Jay said, after the miserable time people have been through, the thought that those that made the rules did not apply them to themselves, that is not petty. What I would say, with all the things happening in geopolitics around the world, what the hell are we putting the Royal Navy into the English Channel to pick up migrants and bring them into Dover for? That really is mad. Alan asks... Is an apology from Boris now meaningless? You know, I think people in life have great respect for those who get caught out, put their hands up and say, I'm sorry. I think people who do that often win a much broader audience. I think it's too late for Boris to apologise now because he's just denied, denied, denied. And you've heard him again tonight saying he thought it was within the rules. He set the blooming rules. And then to say he thought it was a work event. Well, it, you know, it was a bring-your-own-bottle booze-up. Um, and by all accounts, dozens of people were there. There were vast tables of drink. I mean, the whole thing's nonsense. Jack asks, do you think Silvio Berlusconi has a chance of returning as Italy's president? Well, I knew Berlusconi because in my first years and my last years in the European Parliament, he was a member of that parliament. Uh, and there he was in his 80s, the disreputable Silvio Berlusconi. He never, ever gives up. Um, I have to say, I didn't know him that well. I never got invited to any of his parties or Boris Johnson's. Um, I don't think he's a credible figure to be Italy's uh, president, and I don't think it's going to happen. Last one. A viewer asks, do you think it's time that all veterans of the armed forces were given a medal of recognition for service? One of the nicest things we could do in this country, and we should have done it years ago, is to issue a medal for those that did national service, for those that have served this country, so that when they attend... When they attend the November the 11th memorial services, they've got something to wear that recognises their contribution. A National Service Medal would not cost a great deal of money and make millions of people and their families very happy indeed.